Before we dive in, I just want to pray for us this time. Let's pray together. God, your words are the words of eternal life. So now as we open your word, God, this is a very weighty thing that we dive into. So God, I pray you'd help me to preach this faithfully as I ought, to to divide it faithfully and clearly so that we might understand it, might apply it to our lives. Holy Spirit, would you be active amongst us during this time? That you would bring application to our lives, that you would magnify Christ amongst us during this time of opening your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you content? Are you content? As you look out across your life, in all the various things, the various spheres you live in, as a spouse, as a parent, as an employee, as a brother or sister, out of all the things God has given you, and you look, as you look out over your life, you would say, I'm pretty content. Answer this question in your mind, just right, right now where you are. Answer that question. Are you characterized by contentment? Not necessarily are you happy with everything in life. Not, not necessarily are you just happy all the time, but are you content? Are you satisfied? Are you at rest? You're at peace? There's joy in your heart. There's room. There's reason for joy. If you answer that question with, no, I don't think I'm content this morning. I'm glad you're here, and I hope this sermon sets you on a path towards saying yes. But if you did answer yes to that question, are you content, I have a follow-up question for you. Why? Why are you content? What reason do you have for joy this morning? What possible reason do you have to be, feel satisfied, to be, feel hopeful, that you say that you come in this morning and you're at rest just think of a list of reasons in your head right now why you would say, I'm content with where I am right now. Just think of what reasons make you content. Now maybe as you think of those things, you think of things like, I have a family, I have a job, I have friends. Maybe you say on a more, on a more basic level, I have a home to live in, I have food that God has provided, I'm alive. God has given me so many blessings. Now, what if God were to take it all away from you? What if he, by his sovereign hand and in his perfect providence, took everything off of that list? He took everything away from you that you have on earth, and you were left with nothing left. If that happened to you this week, could you walk into church next week and say, yes, I am content. I've lost literally everything I own. My friends have disowned me. I have no food. I have no place to sleep. But I come into here content this morning because I still have Christ. I still have Jesus. And he's enough for me. Now that is a radical thing to say. And also, if we think, that almost sounds impossible. 
It sounds impossible to, to lose everything and still be content. But I want to offer you this, to submit to you this morning that that sort of frame of mind, that way of thinking is Christian contentment. That you could lose everything and because you still have God, you still have Christ in you, you have everything you need. You could be the richest person in the entire world with every material blessing known to man and you still say, if I, if I lost everything, Christ would be enough for me. I don't need this. You have an open hand about it. So that whether everything or nothing is going your way in life, your peace, your inner peace and satisfaction does not waver. Because it's not ultimately about the stuff. It's not about what you have, what you don't have. It's not necessarily about you having your way, but it's about God and his will and his glory for your life. That is a fundamentally Christian kind of contentment. Different from any definition of content that the world can put forth to us. Now that the trunk retreat is over, my mind has shifted into Thanksgiving mode. And I think of, when I think of Thanksgiving, I think of eating a lot of food. And then afterwards, I will watch football, sit on a couch, enjoy a football, enjoy a football game, and I will sit there. And perhaps the, the, the feeling that most like, wraps up that sort of feeling of, I've just eaten a great meal, I'm watching football, you'd say, I'm content. I'm content. Now, this, the, the, saying that makes sense with a normal definition of contentment. Contentment, as we might normally define it, would be something like this. Feeling or showing satisfaction with one's possession, status, or situation. Contentedness, as, the, as a, the normal definition of it might be, feeling or showing satisfaction with one's possessions, status, or situation. Now, I think that definition's fine for our colloquial use, but I think there's one glaring issue with that sort of definition. If you are human, you know this to be true, that your contentedness fluctuates day by day and moment by moment. As you sit there on the couch watching the football game after Thanksgiving, suddenly your team starts losing, and if you're a Lions fan, perhaps that hits close to home. I say that as a Packers fan. Immediately, so in, in that moment, you, you turn the TV on, you start watching football, you're content, and then your team starts losing, and suddenly you're no longer content. Or maybe you're at Thanksgiving and you're, you're having a conversation with a loved one who's, so, who's kind of hard to love, and you're no longer content with the, with, the, with the family you have. Contentedness fluctuates day by day, moment by moment. One, one second we are content, we're good with our life, and the next we're like, man, if I, I wish this was different. I wish this was different. If only this would be different, my life would be a whole lot better, would be a whole lot easier. We go from content to discontent in a matter of seconds. And on a more serious level, if you think about this, perhaps you've built a nice home for you and your family. It started off as a fixer-upper, but you've put a lot of work into it. You've made it beautiful. You're so proud of it. 
And over, the, over your life, you've collected a large book collection with some very valuable books. One night, you return home and discover that your house is on fire and proceeds to burn completely, turning your home and your beloved book collection into ashes. Under the normal definition of contentedness, will you still feel satisfaction with one's possessions? Or maybe you love your job, you love the benefits it gives, the security it provides to your family. And suddenly one day your company announces layoffs and you're one of them. Will you still feel satisfaction with your status? You live a normal life with your family, spouse, kids, whomever. And one day you go to a regular checkup at the and the doctor seems kind of concerned about something. They run tests and inform you and your spouse that you have stage four cancer and it will most likely kill you within two years. In that moment, will you still feel satisfaction about your situation? Or will you despair? Will you feel hopeless? Will you still be content? Not necessarily will you still be happy, will you still be like, oh, this is, this is, no, this is no problem, I don't, I don't need this stuff, um, I'll, it's like nothing, not that. But is there a deep-seated, rooted contentedness that says, all the things of life, they're good, but ultimately, all I need is Christ. I will be content if all I have is Jesus Christ. See, under a worldly definition, your ability to be content is contingent upon the contents of your life. Your ability to be content is contingent upon, are things going my way? Do I have things when I want them, just how I want them? And the problem, as we all know, is that life does not work out that way. Life knocks us down, and we get hurt, we experience great loss, things that really hurt, things that are really painful. And if our contentedness is contingent upon things going our way, we will never be content. If contentedness is contingent upon, I have things the way I want them to be, we will never ultimately be content. What we need is a contentedness that is independent of our circumstances. Is that even possible? Is that even possible? I mean, before we even start, is that even possible? That you could be content, satisfied, rooted, at peace in your heart, regardless of the circumstances around you. Regardless of anything that's going on, that's happening to you, that you're experiencing, you still have just peace and a quietness, a stillness, a confidence in you. I want to submit to you more this morning that yes, it is, but it needs to be a Christian kind of contentment. Only a fundamentally Christian contentment will, will, will you be able to have the frame of mind that no matter what happens to you, you could still be rooted and stable not wavering, not wandering. I want to pose a definition of Christian contentment. One of my favorite books of all time is a lovely book by a Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. This is the definition he poses of a Christian contentment. And as we start this morning, I want to pose this to you to have in our minds. Contentment is the inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit 
freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's disposal in every condition. And I think Jeremiah Burroughs gets this definition from our passage this morning. Philippians chapter 4, 10 through 13. The chapter where this, verse, where this passage is from, start, the passage, there's a passage at the start of the chapter, and it's our passage today. So I believe Jeremiah Burroughs is getting this, this definition from Scripture. I want to unpack what does it look like to be a contented Christian this morning. I think the Apostle Paul is perhaps uniquely, apart from Jesus Christ himself, the perfect person to instruct us on what it looks like to be content, to live in a contented way. In our verses this morning, in Philippians 4, 10 through 13, we'll see three characteristics of the contented Christian. Three characteristics of the contented Christian. The first characteristic is this. The contented Christian is steady amid God's providence. The contented Christian is steady amid God's providence. We'll see this in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So the word rejoice is a common theme of Philippians, comes up a lot. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. He's writing in large part to encourage them, to thank them for the gift that they've given him. Paul is writing this probably from prison. and The Philippians have sent him a gift along the way to encourage him. We learn that this gift was sent from Epaphroditus in verse 18 of this chapter. We learn also that this is not the first gift that the Philippians have given to Paul. If we look at verse 15. And you Philippians know, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. So from the very beginning, the, the Philippians were, were a church that supported Paul through and through. They gave him what he needed to support him. So the Philippians have a track record of helping Paul and supporting him. So there's a deep friendship and a relationship between the churches there and Paul. Which makes verse 10, I think, pretty interesting. That now, he says, I rejoice now at length you have revived your concern for me. So it seems like the Philippians, there's been a big gap. At one point, they were supporting him. And for a long time, they have not been supporting him. They've now revived their concern for him. And that that can sound a little passive-aggressive, I think, at first reading. At length, now finally, you have revived your concern for me. It's been a long time, people. Well, thank you, finally, you helped me out. Maybe you've said something like, well, you've been, you've been sarcastic or passive-aggressive in that kind of a way. But Paul seems to recognize that that's how it might come across, and he wants to clarify that that's not how he's speaking. When he says, you were indeed concerned for me. Like, I know you were. You were concerned for me. You just had no opportunity to show it. So for this long time, it's been probably about 10 years since the Philippians have been able to give Paul a gift. He has waited a decade. He has not heard from them. This church that he loves, these friends, this church he helped found, it's been now been 10 years since the Philippians were able to support him, and he has not heard from them. He has encountered a lot of trouble. He has been persecuted in a number of ways, 
and he has not heard from this church in 10 years. But he still, he makes the point to say, I know you were, you were concerned for me, but you just didn't have a chance to show it. We don't know exactly what circumstances prevented them from showing their concern for him, but we know that they, they, he, they had no opportunity. It was not there, it was not, uh, they were just neglecting Paul, but they just did not have the opportunity to do it. And Paul is remarkably gracious in his tone towards them. He hasn't heard from them in so long, yet there's no animosity, there's no tension between them. How, does Paul, how can Paul do this? How can Paul be in prison in this writing, having suffered so much, He's, he hasn't received a gift from this church in 10 years, and yet still say that when he, when he finally receives something from them, there's no tension, there's no animosity, there's no like, what took you so long? This is evidence of a man who has learned to be content. He's content and he's confident in the providence of God. Paul is an example of one who is steady amid God's providence. We see this immediately in verse 10. I mean, look, he says, I rejoiced. He, didn't, he doesn't just say, I rejoiced greatly, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. He's thanking God. He's rejoicing in God. He's saying, God, thank you for this kindness of receiving this gift. Paul was content to rest in God's timing and God's provision for his life. He was not one who was going out and manipulating people to get what he wanted. He wasn't trying to force the Philippians' hand. He says, he, in Paul's mind, it's almost as if he says, if the Philippians give me a gift, great. I will rejoice in it. But even if they don't, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. In verse 19, Paul tells them that, my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And I think he's speaking from experience when he says that. He has seen God to supply every need of his. He has seen firsthand, time and time again, how God has provided for him. It may not have been, it probably wasn't in the exact way that Paul planned, may not have been in Paul's timing, but God has always provided for what Paul needs. Even if he has to wait 10 years to hear from the Philippians and their gift, he knows that God will provide for him. In God's sovereign timing, God will meet all of his needs. So he doesn't need to panic. He doesn't need to get flustered. He doesn't need to go out and try to manipulate people into giving him gifts. He simply trusts. He's steady. He's confident in God's providence. He's confident that God is the one who's going to meet my need. God is the one who's working out all these things. So I'm going to be okay. Whatever God brings my way, I'm going to be okay. Paul knew that God was causing all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called by him. I think Paul deeply, deeply understands that God is not holding out on him. God is using all things for Paul's good. So even if the Philippians had never given Paul another dime, even if they had never shown their concern for him again, Paul would have been okay. He would have been content because God's providence, I'm going to work out, everything's going to work out. Everything's going to be okay. 
God's going to provide for my every need. Now, what does this look like in a person's life? If you have a confidence in God's provision, well, providence is the doctrine that God is in control of all things. That if we would look with a wide enough lens at our lives, at the world, at the universe, nothing good or bad happens in your life as accident. And so if you trust that God is in control of everything, what ought to be your response when you see the providence of God unfolding in your life? A stillness, a quietness, a steadiness and unshakableness. A frame of mind that says, even in the bad times, I'm not going to rage against God. I'm not going to just blame God for everything. I'm not going to accuse God, say, God, how could you possibly do this to me? I have been faithful to you, and you're going to, in Paul's case, shipwreck me? You're going to throw me in prison? You're going to have me persecuted? This contented frame of mind that says confidence in God's providence is steady. That says, I know God knows what he's doing. I know God knows what he's doing. So in bad times, we don't rage against God. And it's the frame of, times that, it's a frame of mind that in times of good, when things are going right, we don't hold on to our possessions with a closed fist. When you have everything, you don't hold on to it and try to keep it and fight tooth and nail to keep, hold on to it. But you offer an open hand and say, everything that I have, God, I want you to use. I want you to have it. If that means I have to give some of it up, I'm going to give some of it up because it's yours. And I know that you're going to do do better with it than I can. In order to have this frame of mind where you think this way about about God's providence, you need to believe certain things about the character of God. What you believe about God on a theological level, a doctrinal level, has really, really practical applications. One, is God all wise? Does God know how to govern the universe better than you do? Does God know how to orchestrate the the course of your life better than you do? Or are you a better judge of what you need than he is? Does he make mistakes? He's trying, to, he's trying his best. He's really good. But he, you know, there are sometimes, there's just some things he can't see. There's some things he doesn't quite know. He doesn't quite get right. He's on the right track. Does, but he, he has overlooked something in my life this one time. You know, do you believe God is all wise, all knowing? Secondly, do you believe that your God is a loving father? Is he acting in the best interests of his children? Not necessarily what you think you need, but what he knows you need. A loving father who gives good gifts to his children. The one who is acting on your behalf, in your best interests. Do you believe that the things that God is doing in your life, he's not doing them to spite you. He's not, he's not, he's not doing them out of vindictiveness. But if you are in Christ, if you are an adopted child of God, he is your father leading you on the right path. And as a father with a child, the child may not know 
what the right path is. The child often does not know the right course to take. They start doing things that are bad for them. They start doing things that will hurt them. And the loving father corrects it. The loving father is the one who brings it back into the right path, the one that will ultimately grow you the most. And so God, as your loving father, is growing you. He's directing your path towards godliness, towards holiness. So our God, his character, he is all wise. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he's a loving father that is acting in your best interest if you are a child of God. And so, if you trust God in this way, if you believe these things about God, that he is all wise and he's a loving father, you can trust that he is providentially working all things for your good and his glory. And when you embrace this, when you embrace this on an inward, like, gut level, this is how we are empowered to be steady amid God's providence. Because if you don't believe this, if you believe God makes mistakes in your life, when these bad things are happening, you'll be like, God, God, God's making mistakes. He's making mistakes. I, I, don't, I don't know what he's doing. I don't, is he, is he, is he, does he have a plan for this? I don't know. Things are looking, getting, getting off the rails here. And I can't trust that God is actually knows what he's doing. And if you don't believe that he's lo- he loves you and he's working in your best interest, things will happen to you and you're like, is God just angry with me? Is he out to get me? Is he punishing me for something? But when we embrace it, we're empowered to be steady amid God's providence. So you can find yourself in situations like the Apostle Paul and be content knowing that God is at work and he's doing something good in your life. A couple quotes from a, uh, an author named Thomas Watson. I think it's beautiful things. Hence I gather that outward troubles cannot hinder this blessed content- contentment. It is a spiritual thing and ariseth from spiritual grounds, the apprehension of God's love. When there is a tempest without, there may be music within. A bee may sting through the skin, but it cannot sting to the heart where contentment lies. The soul which is possessed of this rich treasure of contentment is like Noah in the ark that can sing in the midst of a deluge. Another one. Thus, contentment as a honeycomb drops sweetness into every condition. Discontent is a leaven that sours every comfort. It puts aloes and wormwood upon the breast of the creature. It lessens every mercy. It trebles every cross. But the contented spirit sucks sweetness from every flower of providence. It can make a treacle of poison. Contentation is full of consolation. Love that last line, that last quote. The contented spirit sucks sweetness from every flower of providence. Not every bit of providence is going to strike you immediately as sweet. You know this. You go through life, there are things that happen in God's providence that you say, "I I would not have chosen that. I would not have done things that way. But I... A Christian contentment sucks sweetness. Even out of the bitterness, there's a, there's a, great, there's a little bit of sweetness too that you can extract to say, I know my God's in control. I know he's using this for my good, for his glory. I know he loves me. 
I know this is for my best, and I know he knows what's best. So from every sweetness, from, from sweetness from every flower of providence, that helps keep us steady because we have this frame of mind about us. It doesn't mean that we're emotionless. It doesn't mean that we're not affected by things that happen in life. No. Even Paul writes in other letters that even he despaired of life itself at times. But stillness and steadiness amid God's providence doesn't mean, it does not mean you don't cry out to God. God wants us to cry out to him. As you experience things in life, you cry out to him. But Christian contentment, a contented spirit, changes the words of your cry. Instead of the cry of, how could you, God? This isn't fair. We look to God and say, God, this hurts. I don't understand, but help me to trust you. I know you're in control, and I know you love me. To be steady, to be rooted amid God's providence, that we don't completely despair, but we can trust in God. The contented person is steady amid God's providence. I think the Paul, Apostle Paul exemplifies that well. The second characteristic of the contented Christian, the contented Christian is satisfied regardless of circumstances. The contented Christian is satisfied regardless of circumstances. Look at verses 11 and 12. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So having just talked about how he rejoiced greatly in their gift, Paul's almost stopping to clarify his comments. <laughs> he, the fact that he rejoiced greatly, he, he, Paul almost seems to think, the fact that he rejoiced so much might lead them to conclude he was discontent that he was so desperate for their gift, and finally, what I needed. So he wants to be clear that he doesn't see himself as being in need. He doesn't rejoice in the gift because he was in need. He doesn't, he doesn't deny that he lacked things. I mean, certainly he lacked things, but the Apostle Paul's stat, his frame of mind was, I, I don't need, I'm not in need of things. He's not dependent on their gift in order to be content. It's not, as no, it's not as though he was desperately awaiting this gift. And finally it came and now he's content. Now he has what he needs and he can be, and he can be better. No, Paul was content in whatever situation he found himself in. He says, not the, I'm not speaking of need. Why? Because I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He has learned to be content. And I think it's interesting and fascinating to note here this word content. It's the same word used often by Stoic philosophers and Stoicism to mean self-sufficiency. That this, the Stoics would believe you have everything you need in yourself. That you don't need anyone else. You don't need anything else. You are just content in and of yourself. You're unaffected by the things in the world. If you're unaffected by other people, by other things, and you're emotionless, you value reason over emotion, you can be self-sufficient because I, I am just so removed from everything that I'm sufficient in and of myself. You're unfazed by these things in life. And so it's virtuous in the mind of the Stoic to not rely on other people or other things 
And Paul is using this word intentionally to flip it on its head. Paul is not self-sufficient, but one commentator said he is God-sufficient. He's not self-sufficient, but he's God-sufficient. Because he knows that God is sufficient for him. He still feels the pangs of hunger. He still feels the mistreatment, Paul does. But Paul has just this unquenchable joy of being in Christ. That as long as he has God, no one can take that away. No one can take God away from him. And as long as he has that, he's going to be content. The circumstances of his life don't change the Holy Spirit living in him. Don't change his status as an adopted son of God. And so Paul can say, no matter what happens, God is sufficient for me. He's all I need. Whether I have a little or a lot materially, it means little to him because nothing can take away that which is ultimate. That in our lives, even if you lose everything in the world, you st- and you are, if you are in Christ, you have the ultimate thing that cannot be taken away from you. And we can be satisfied regardless of circumstances. Think of the Apostle Paul when he talks about I know how to be brought low. I think the Apostle Paul knows exactly what it's like to be brought low far more than most of us do. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 24 through 27. Just some of the examples that Paul might be drawing on when he says, I know how to be brought low. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day was I adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul knows how to be brought low. I have not been brought so low as to be shipwrecked multiple times, adrift at sea. I suspect neither of you are. We have, we have experienced hard things. All of us, you have experienced hard things. Absolutely. Paul has too. And so for Paul to be able to say this, to have encountered all of this, and still to say, in these situations, I can be content. It's because he's learned the secret of being content, regardless of circumstances. Paul's joy in Christ is unquenchable. His satisfaction is not contingent upon his circumstances. He's not more satisfied with having much as with having little. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning the same similar sort of question. To what extent is your satisfaction contingent upon your circumstances? To what what extent is your satisfaction, your contentment, contingent upon your circumstances? Where as long as I've got what I need, as long as I've got this thing or that thing or this is going this way, life is going good, I can be content. But maybe there's something in your life right now that it's not going how you planned. Maybe something in your life is not quite what you hoped it would be. 
Maybe you are wondering if something will ever happen. You're awaiting something, and you're like, I don't know if it's ever going to happen. Maybe you've recently experienced something that has been very painful. And so we have to ask ourselves, do you feel like you need something more in your life in order to be content? That, if you, you say in your mind, if only this goes this way, then I'll really be able to be content. I'll be, I'll be satisfied once this is over. Once I get through this. Once this happens to me, once I get to experience this, that will actually, I'll be content now. I'll be content. If only I had more money. A better work situation. If only I had a family. If only I had kids. Then I could finally be content. And I want to say it's appropriate to desire and these things and pursue them oftentimes. It's not wrong to desire those things and pursue them. But those things in and of themselves are not the end goal. Being in Christ, being found in him, is the end goal. If God were to keep you single your whole life, even though you desire to marry, at the end of your life, could you honestly say, I'm content? Or now, if, if you don't like your current job situation and you and somehow found out that you're going to have to be stuck at that job for the next 30 years, would you still be content? Or would you feel like God's holding out on you? Would you wonder if God is withholding some good gift from you? I, I, can't, I can't be content. People, all of, us, all of us, we're not content with little or with much. You can have little and tempted to believe that if and when I have more, then I can finally be content. I can breathe. I can relax. Take it easy. I'll be content. And those people who said those things, if they find themselves with more means later on, they're not satisfied with what they have. We're we're always constantly searching for the new thing, the next thing. It's how some of the wealthiest people get involved in the biggest scandals. They weren't content with what they had, and they believed that there was something better out there for them. So the contented Christian finds satisfaction regardless of circumstances. You could be brought low, you could have everything, and I'm, I'm satisfied. If, even if I lost everything, I'd be okay. Because God has not left me. God has not forsaken me. Every need of yours has been met in Christ. That God will provide for your every need, and he is all that you need. So, as we conclude this point, I want to ask you just a couple more questions. Is the grace of God to save you enough to satisfy you? Is the Holy Spirit's presence in you and with you today enough to satisfy you? Is your eternity in the presence of God, glorified and without sin, enough to satisfy you? If you knew what God has done for you, that he's in you, and that you'll be glorified one day, and that's all you had, is that, is, that a, is that satisfactory? Or would you like a good job in addition? Do you need money in addition to that? Do you need a family in addition to that? The third characteristic of the contented Christian. The contented Christian finds strength in Christ. The contented Christian finds strength in Christ. 
So Paul, in verse 12, has said, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So the question naturally arises, what is the secret? And the secret is, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now this is a famous verse. You've probably heard it before. I would say it's in top five of Bible verses taken out of context. Often it's used as empowerment. I can think of professional athletes, football players, who after the game, they're in there being interviewed, and they say, and they say like, oh, like, how, did, how did you do it? What, what was the, how was the game for you? And they, they say something to the effect of, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. They believe that because God is strengthening them, they will go out and win this game. That I can win this game because God is strengthening me. Well, what's the context of this verse? Well, Paul says, I have learned to be content He's learned the secret of facing all of these things, facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So the secret to facing all of that is the knowledge that the power of Christ in you is strengthening you. Paul is being strengthened, built up, bolstered by the fact that he has Christ in him. You can go through any circumstance when you let go of your self-reliance and you find strength in Christ. Paul can endure any situation. He can face death, imprisonment. He can face all those things of 2 Corinthians 11 because Christ is the one strengthening him and empowering him. Paul can walk into a city knowing he's facing persecution, knowing I can do this. I'm going to do this, not because I have it in me, because, because Christ Jesus Christ is the one power, empowering me and strengthening me. No doubt, there were so many days when the Apostle Paul reached his physical limit. Can you imagine going from city to city, knowing you will face people who persecute you, facing people who want nothing to do with you, who will chase you out? Like, wouldn't that be exhausting? And he did that for years? How in the world do you think the Apostle Paul had the strength to endure that time and time again? Like, it boggles our minds a little bit. Well, he did it because he finds his strength in Christ. Christ is the one, the power of God in him is the one, when he reaches his physical limit and he can't do it anymore, he says, Christ is the one who strengthens me. I can keep going because I have a supernatural strength within me. The strength of Christ is recharging him to press on. And so today, God's power indwells believers today. And his power in you, by his Holy Spirit, who dwells within you, that power is more than sufficient to strengthen you and sustain you through your trials. When you feel like you're at the end of your rope, when you feel like my strength is failing, I don't know how I can press on further. Can I live to see tomorrow because of what has happened to me? Look to Christ. Look to the strength he provides to pick you up off of your knees, to bring you back to stand up on level, solid ground. The power of Christ will pull you through. 
Jeremiah Burroughs, in that same book I mentioned earlier, says this. A Christian finds satisfaction in every circumstance by getting strength from another, by going out of himself to Jesus Christ, by his faith acting upon Christ and bringing the strength of Jesus Christ into his own soul. He is thereby enabled to bear whatever God lays on him by the strength that he finds from Jesus Christ. So we find strength in tough circumstances, in good circumstances, in all circumstances, by looking to Christ and saying, God, help me, strengthen me, pick me up. I'm leaning on you in this time. In this quote, I think we see two things, interestingly. One, that God is the one who who may lay afflictions upon you. God is the one who lays afflictions upon you. Nothing happens outside of God's providence. And God is the one who strengthens you to endure those afflictions. He is not vindictive. He is not just putting you to the test. He is inviting you to lean on him. He may be putting those trials into your life so that that you will let go of your self-dependency, of your feeling like, I can do this. I've got my life figured out. I can pretty much do everything in life on my own. Even if you wouldn't say that in your mind, oftentimes our actions reflect that. And so God may, may choose to put things in your life so that you will look to him, that you will find your strength in him, that you will not look to another source, but you will rest on him, you will lean on him, I think of when I was in college, there was a, a bus that, there were buses that went throughout campus, and uh, being, a, being a silly uh, freshman in college, I got on a bus one time, and I thought, okay, what, what I, want, what I want to do is I'm going to try to stand on this bus without holding on to anything. You know, they have the railings on the bus or on a train, perhaps, and you, you know, if you're standing, you're supposed to grab onto them, right? Like, you're supposed to. And being my 19-year-old self, I thought, I can, I'm going to see if I can, like, surf the bus, you know. I'm going to hold on as it moves. That lasted about two seconds once the bus started moving. Immediately as the bus starts moving, I'm like, waver. I cannot stay steady. I need to hold on to something. If I had gone, if I had gone the entire bus ride, trying to nav- as the bus turns, trying to navigate that, I am going to fall. I am going to. What I need to do is hold on to the rail. It's there to support me, to hold me up. If I just, if I just grab onto it, I'm going to be much steadier. It's a silly person, a foolish person who thinks, I know it's there, but I think I could do this myself. So we grab on to the railing. Though we might go side to side, we're going to be planted. And similar with our lives. That contentment is not relying upon your own strength to stand all the time. But it's clinging to God. It's finding strength in God. When the trials of life make the ground shake under you and you feel unsteady, he is the one who is steady enough to keep you rooted. You can look to other things It's easy when you're in a a trial to look to other things to satisfy. And those things will not keep you steady. You will still be shaken. 
only leaning upon God, grabbing on to the grace of God, the strength of God, will you have the strength to bring, to go through that trial? And so, we have to ask this morning, if you, whatever you are going through, will you hold on to him? Will you brace yourself upon Jesus this morning? Where you say, I don't have the strength, but God, help me, give me the strength. Hold me up. So the contented Christian finds that strength in Christ. So I want to close this morning with this quote from Jeremiah Burroughs, the one I mentioned earlier. I think this quote is not, it's not scripture. It's, I know it's not scripture. But I think this quote is taken from Philippians chapter 4, and so I think it's helpful in as far as it is rooted in Scripture. And I know for myself, as I go through life, this quote has been very helpful for me to examine my heart, to examine where can I grow in this area? I want to close in in, in reading it and asking us this question. Ask yourself, how might you grow in Christian contentment? Contentment is the inward, quiet, gracious, framed spirit, freely submitting to and taking pleasure in God's disposal in every condition. May God help us to continue to develop this great framed spirit. May God empower us to live as contented people who submit to God's providence, who are steady amidst it, who are satisfied with Christ and find our strength in him. Let's pray together this morning. God, thank you for your word. Thank you how it challenges us, how it encourages us. Thank you, God, that you are not a God who is far off, but you are a God who is near us, who is in us, empowering us. God, we thank you that when we are struggling, when we are, don't know where to turn, we don't know how we will make it through another day, You don't leave us to figure it out on our own and to rely on ourselves, but we can turn to you and find a steady anchor for our souls. So I pray, God, as we now go into this week and we face trials and things things don't go the way we want, that we might lean upon the anchor, Christ, that sure and steady anchor, that though the tempest rages on, we can be steady amidst it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.